James chapter 1, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 18. Since it's New Year's, what do exercising, dieting, and saving more money have in common? Yep, aside from making us feel guilty and uncomfortable, they are the most common New Year's resolutions for 2020. And in Washington, the most common is saving more money. So why is it that we often groan when we consider these resolutions? I think it's because we know they mean suffering. The suffering of our stomach growling as we smell the potluck food. The suffering of our lungs burning from our oxygen as we try to take that first jog. The pain of denying ourselves the latest phone or gadget or coffee run. Suffering. It's interesting that all three of these New Year's resolutions that are the top have been the top for many years. We all want to get in shape, lose a few pounds, and have a financial cushion. But year after year, we're not very good at keeping our resolutions. We aren't very, very good at enduring this mild suffering. Studies show that only about uh, most people, most people by mid-February have not made their res- re- resolution. And only about 10% of Americans actually keep their resolution permanently. So the logic says if we endure a little bit longer, it'll be helpful to us. And not quitting will help that suffering that took place not to be wasted, but we aren't able to remain steadfast. We start with a flash, but then our inner strength, it wanes. So, if this is true for popular New Year's resolutions, what about areas of our lives that are more important? About integrity. What about integrity and faithfulness and humility and prayer? The book of James has a lot to say about making changes in ourselves the better, especially about producing lasting, authentic faith. And the good news is that the perfect God does not leave us to ourselves but he perfects our faith. That's the good news. Our problem is that we often fight his methods. For God often perfects our faith through trials. To start this new year, we receive an exhortation, a straightforward exhortation from the book of James. You'll see it on the screen. Don't waste your trials. Profit by his gifts. Don't waste your trials. Profit by his gifts. The perfect God perfects faith through testing. And our responsibility is to remain fast in his strength and thereby profit. We waste the growth that is possible through trials when we quit, when we give up. So, let's read the words of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation, and the rich in his humiliation. 
because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let what no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. In verse 1, we begin with a simple greeting. But this greeting is very important to understanding the whole of this book, to interpret it, the message of the book. It tells us the author, and it also tells us the writing, the type of writing we're reading, and who, what the setting is. Straightforwardly, it's pretty simple. James is the author. But the name James in the New Testament, there's a number of people named James. Two of them were among Jesus' originally 12 disciples. The evidence shows that it was not these two men that wrote this book. The James who wrote this book is actually the half-brother of Jesus. As a virgin, Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. But later, Joseph and Mary had other children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. So I can, you can only imagine what it would have been like to be the brother of Jesus. Surprisingly, none of these, um, his brothers and sisters believed on him until after the resurrection. James, our author, Jesus' half-brother, had a significant conversion after being a witness to the resurrected Jesus from the dead rose again. And from that point forward, he was a devoted follower of Jesus. And he became the chief leader of the church that was in Jerusalem. And he was known for being a very um, upright and upstanding in character. And they called him James the Just for that reason. In addition, he, he was said to have knees like a camel. He had knees like a camel, they said, because he spent so much time praying on his knees. But in this letter, we begin by recognizing that James does not mention any of his pedigree, where he came from, or his position. They're less important to him. James uniquely, his unique greeting identifies him as, what does it say? It says, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This title is the, of servant is not one that we would consider a privilege, but it is a great honor to be a servant of the living great God. James joins other leaders like Moses and David who took this title gratefully. And then James goes a little bit farther, though, in his reading. He declares him, he says, he's a servant of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, his half-brother, says that Jesus is, he's a servant of Jesus. He says he's both Lord and Messiah, and he is servant. James had been radically transformed and changed. So as we kick off 2020, I hope that you and I proudly embrace the title of servant. It is an honor to be called servants of the Lord Jesus Christ of God. Consider all your successes this last year. 
Consider your positions this last year. Do you count being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ as a privilege and an honor? We should. Now going further, we see a little bit that James is writing a letter, and we see who he's writing it to. James's letter, letters were common in the New Testament, but his addressees are unique. James is not writing to one church or one person, but he is writing a general letter to um, Jewish believers that had believed on Jesus as Lord and Christ. And for their belief, they had been dispersed um, outside of Jerusalem. He's writing his letter to these folks. When persecution of the Jewish believers arose, they were scattered from Jerusalem by their own, um, their own brothers, their, their own Jews. They were scattered and displaced into Gentile lands. These men and women no longer fit in among their own ethnic family, and they didn't fit in outside of Jerusalem in Gentile territory as well. They were misfits. And as such, they faced poverty, and they faced, they faced partiality, and they faced trials. These were difficult times for these scattered Hebrew Christians. So James's disposition, consider this, in writing this letter is like an older brother writing a general letter to all his distant siblings during a difficult and challenging time. In this letter, he repeats this phrase, you'll see it, my beloved brothers, and, or just my brothers. And often, he, he just wants to show his love for them. He knows that he loves them, they know that he knows, they know him and he knows them, and so he speaks directly and firmly to them. He desires, them to, desires for them to remain steadfast, true to Jesus, in their unique settings. So as a wise, caring older brother, James quickly sets off to help his siblings in Christ live authentic faith during trying times. His aim is to help them face the troubles and face them in a way that's profitable for their growth so they don't waste their trials. So in verses 2 through 18, we're going to discuss six gifts from God that James gives to help his brothers profit from their trials. I'm going to read them out loud right now. They're all going to start with an R, but you will see them on the screen, so you don't have to worry about um, getting them all down right away. In verses 2 through 4, our first one, we're going to talk about a reason for joy. That's the first gift. The second gift will be in verses 5 through 8. It will be relevant wisdom. The third gift will be in verses 9 through 11, a reversal of riches. Fourth, in verse 12, we're going to see a reward for resolve. Fifth, in verses 13 through 15, we're going to see a revealing rebuke. And then lastly, six, verses 16 to 18, a re- realization of God. So, we begin with our first gift from God in verses 2 through 4. This is a reason for joy. Reason for joy. Let me read it verses 2 through 4 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In my uh, younger years, I was playing soccer, and um, each season would start with daily doubles. I don't know if anybody else had that um, experience. And this was a time of year where you practiced intensely twice a day. Lots of sprints, lots of heat, lots of sore muscles, and then lots of complaining. It was affectionately called hell week. You experience pain in order to strengthen the body and the mind. Some did not last, and the pain was too much for them. Others learned to embrace and relish the pain, for it meant growth. 
James knows his brothers and sisters are suffering various trials. But as an older brother, he knows that their trials have a purpose. And the purpose will only be accomplished if they endure. So James tells them to take joy when they are met with trials. For paradoxically, trials are a reason for joy. God gives the gift of joy in trials through purpose. The only way for your faith to grow in depth is to be tested. God is pleased when we exercise faith, when faith is exercised by his people. Therefore, God will see, God will see that our faith grows. Surprisingly, there is joy while we endure trials because God perfects faith through trials. Our responsibility is to remain steadfast. Like an athlete must train and endure to perfect her craft, or like a, a chef must not give up after the tenth failed recipe, we must endure the trial so it may produce the full effect in our lives. God is completing, perfecting your faith. He is perfect, so he won't let you, he won't leave you lacking. God completes his work in his people by testing. There are many of you who we've watched endure trials over the years. We've seen your faith grow, and because you have allowed the trial to take full effect through steadfastness, it has reaped a profitable reward. I'll give you one example. Our sister, uh, Ruth Nolan, lost her husband, George, a little over a year ago. They were married for 54 years. And George's steadfast faith, you guys remember it, was an example to us. In, in his homecoming with Christ, it was an example to us. But Ruth's faith has also been a model to us. She has endured and still endures the, law, the loss, but she has blossomed. I've seen it and watched in her faith grow. She's trusted in God to, in a more full way. Her knowledge of his, his presence has expanded, and she's a greater witness of the gospel, I believe. This is the produce of remaining steadfast in trials. It is a trial not wasted. But sadly, there are some among us, some we've seen in the past, that give up in the middle. To stop before the test is completed. To see no reason for joy. This is a waste of a trial. To experience the pain without the effect. I find it excruciating. It makes me groan inside to see a brother and sister endure a trial and experience the pain, but then lose out on what the Lord's good work is in their lives. Beloved brothers and sisters, don't waste your trials. Trust God. Listen to this. God is not asking you to like your trial, but he does want you to take joy in the purpose. See that there is a reason for joy when you remain steadfast in trial. Don't give up. Please don't give up. God is testing your faith so you might, you might be perfected and completed for your good. Let the trial have the full effect in your life. Now, it's one thing to know that trials are good, are God's good and God's way to produce faith in us. But it's quite another to know how to apply that knowledge. It's one thing to know, but how do you apply it? So God has provided a second gift, and that is relevant wisdom. Verses 5 through 8, relevant wisdom. Let me read that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Trials, they come in various forms, don't they? They're little inconveniences like bad traffic, a cold, maybe an ongoing crying child, a disappointing grade. Or there are life-changing events like a divorce or a job loss, persecution or death. All trials are are uncomfortable. And we shouldn't try to compare our trials amongst each other. We've all experienced where you say like, oh, I broke my finger, and the other person says, oh, I broke two fingers. (laughs) This is not the way we should relate to one another in trials. We all need relevant wisdom for our unique circumstances. And this is why prayer is so needful. God offers wisdom to those who ask. And wisdom provides the right, the fitting application of our knowledge. Wisdom is what a sufferer needs. For knowledge can identify the trial, but wisdom shows us how to walk through it. Once I tried to learn the drums, and it didn't last long because my wife thought I was terrible. She couldn't stand it. I knew that you beat a drum rhythmically with sticks, and that creates a nice sound, but unlike Jonathan Andrews, wherever he is, I didn't know how to apply that knowledge. God does not leave his people in their test alone. He gives a great great resource for help, relevant wisdom. And wisdom is received by prayer, by asking. Thankfully, God is generous to provide when his people ask. The word translated in verse 5 is generous, It's only used here in the New Testament. And it comes from a word meaning single-minded, undivided. So the idea here is that God gives to those who ask with single focus, an undivided intent to give just what is needed to the one who is asking. If you were to know the reason for your trials, it would be informative. But it wouldn't help you through them. You need to know how to apply that information. No one but God has the ability to help you. We are each unique, and our trials are unique, and we're co- even, even, the tr- even one person will have a different trial at different times. We need different answers for them. Do you pray for wisdom? Do you seek it like treasure? Rejoice that God is generous. He's single-focused in giving you what you need when you ask. If you want to be steadfast in suffering, if you want to profit from the trial, pray for wisdom to our generous God. That is how you profit from your trial. Now, James goes on to address a common problem. And the problem here is asking without faith. He calls that prayer, basically he says it's useless. In contrast to being single-focused, as God is to provide, a faithless prayer is double-minded. It's tossed about like a ping-pong ball in a lotto machine, subject to random fate. A faithless prayer sees God and as one option among many that might help and doesn't hurt, versus treating prayer to God as the only and single lifeline for help, single-focused. Once a man, he came to Jesus desperate for his son's life. And Jesus told him that all things are possible to him who believes. And what did the man declare? He said, I believe, 
help my unbelief. This is the prayer of faith that James is talking about. He's not saying perfect faith. We won't have that in this lifetime. But he is seeing a single-minded faith, a faith that comes to God as the only means of help. That man knew that Jesus was the one that could help, a faith that knows that God is the only ultimate provider. When you come to God, are you sincere? Do you ask for wisdom because you know it's the right thing to do? Or are you actually trusting in yourself and your own resources to figure things out? This is a prayer that you should suppose to receive nothing from the Lord. The gift of God, relevant wisdom, is available. And even if your faith is small, a small faith set on God alone is effective. Small faith is enough to endure the trial with a big God. And as you endure, your faith will grow. And the next time, you'll pray and you'll pray a little more quickly and your faith will grow again. This is the growth, the maturing of our faith. Listen to James and you will find that with God and his wisdom, what seems impossible and painful now will be looked upon in the future as worth the struggle. It was worth it to experience that trial. So the next question is, how do I rid myself of seeking help in other ways? The answer, you do so by seeing yourself in the right light. Seeing yourself as needy before God and your need is for him alone. No matter what your state is, rich or poor, powerful or lowly. And that's what we see in our next gift, verses 9 through 11, a reversal of riches. Reversal of riches. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When facing a trial, we begin to see ourselves wrongly. We can. The lowly poor man can see himself as insignificant and unimportant, while the powerful rich man can see himself as in control, self-reliant. Both of these states are damaging for God's people. The lowly person loses hope and will not speak to God out of a sense of unworthiness, while the rich person will not speak to God out of a sense of independence and power. This third gift is a bit of a surprise, for James calls for a reversal of riches. He knows that the lowly brother and the rich brother both need to know themselves correctly so they might better see their standing with God. This, is, this gift, a reversal of riches, is what is required. It will help the lowly brother to see himself as truly exalted, as a son of God, one who is adopted into God's family and rich with the inheritance of God, while the rich brother needs to see himself as passing. The life is passing. He should examine the course of nature, He must realize that his wealth and power will not last, that the ever-clicking clock of age catches up with everyone. We live in a society in which there is great wealth. Americans typically receive, you probably know, about 10 times more income than other people in the world. And as you know, this prosperity has not led to greater thankfulness to God. It has resulted in less belief in God. 
As the ter- at the turn of the century, 70% of people were members of churches. Now in 2020, only about 50% are members of churches, and that number is much less in the Pacific Northwest. It is only when trials come to Americans that we see spikes in church attendance, people seeking after God. Our technology and wealth and security make us feel self-sufficient. We don't need God. Our society has gone the way of the rich man. We need the the humiliation as James advises. All people, rich and poor, powerful or lowly, will experience trials. But only those who see themselves accurately within the trial will grow. If you see yourself as hopeless and unimportant, exalt in that you're adopted by God as his child. If you see yourself as self-sufficient, this is probably more true in our society with all of our money and power, then dwell in your passing strength. Visit a graveyard. Read a few tombstones. Pastor Stephen, when he first started here, he took Steve and I to the graveyard, showed us some tombstones. Consider our passing nature. Here you will, surprise, you will find a surprising gift. A reversal of riches is the gift that we all need. Well, unlike our third gift, the fourth one is probably what you would expect and want. The path to a single-sided devotion to God, the eradication of the double-mindedness within us, goes through trials and loneliness. But there is, this is what you want, a reward for resolve. Reward for resolve, verse 12. Let me read it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This last week, my wife decided it was time to um, use reading glasses. The words on the page were becoming a little bit too small for her to read, and she now wears them around the house with a bemused smile. It's a sign of the ever-clicking clock. Personally, I find them very attractive as she glides through the house with her spectacles. (laughs) Trials tend to make us myopic, nearsighted. It's as if we put on the reading glasses permanently. We can only see what's right in front of us. Our vision of the future is blurry. James knows that going through trials, that people need to take off the spectacles. They needed to know where they're headed They need to know the promises of God and of the future. He promises, God promises, a reward for those who love him. The truth is that our trials of this life are extremely short. Think of that. They're extremely short when we compare it to the future. A trial that lasts a decade or a year or a month or a day or a moment can seem like an eternity when we're in the trial. But It's incomparable to what is in store for the child of God, the lover of God. Timeless. The reward for resolve, for steadfastness, is the crown of life. As an Olympian in ancient times would be crowned with an olive branch wreath for winning, the Bible uses this imagery to explain the reward of the believer. Those who love God are promised life, the gift of life fullness of life in this age, and eternal life in the age to come. Steadfastness has great rewards. Church, part of our responsibility is to speak to one another 
as James speaks to his brothers. I encourage you to pray for wisdom. Ask the Lord how you might be a channel of his gift to your church family. We very much need the Lord's wisdom to help in trials because the needs of our brothers and sisters within a trial vary from person to person. They change over time. It's different for everyone. We need the Lord's wisdom to walk this fine line of staying silent and listening or giving words of comfort or encouragement or speaking about the greater purpose or helping them see eternal life and the rewards to come. It is our privilege to be a channel of God's gifts. We need wisdom. As we see from James, sometimes that means to help each other take off the glasses of myopia. When your sister cannot see the future because her trial is too much, tell her about it. When your brother feels like the trial will not end, remind him of life eternal. Help one another. Stir one another in a love for God. Remind each other of his promises. It's a privilege we have. It's a responsibility. Help each other. Now, another gift that doesn't seem like a gift is what we need. We all love a reward for our motivation, but sometimes we need a swift kick in the backside. We need a reprimand. And there's a time for a revealing rebuke. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. To err is human, but to blame it on another is even more human. That's what we do. We blame our dog or our brother, or our kids. We might even blame the devil. And sometimes we go as far as to blame God for our problems. But our blame of God is usually not so direct. We question. We cast questions this way. God, why did you give me these passions? God, why didn't you answer my prayer for deliverance? God, why did you have me marry this man or have this child? We are skilled at casting veiled blame. James here, he rebukes anyone who says, I am being tempted by God. For it is an impossibility for God to tempt because God is not tempted by evil. The logic goes this way. James's argument. God is holy. So it's against his very nature to do evil. Therefore, how could he tempt another with what he cannot share in? It's an impossibility. Now for a moment, I want to get a little bit technical. The Greek word for trial and tempt have the same root word. Based on the context, the Greek word will be translated into the English in various forms. Tempt, test, try, examine. So for example, Jesus tested his followers in John 6.6. While the devil tempted Jesus to sin in Matthew 4.1. It's the same word. And in fact, the Spirit of God led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. By the devil. Some of the mystery of God and of trials and temptations is that God can test us at the same time as our own desires are tempting us. God's testing is never designed to lead us toward evil. That's impossible. It is to prove the authenticity of our faith. 
to help us grow. Temptation is rooted inside of us. It's illegitimate to cast blame to others, for we are lured and enticed by our own desires. You can think of a fish lure. You know, Justin back there, Aaron's probably here. They're fishing often. The shiny lure, it wiggles and jiggles as it passes by the fish's mouth. The wise fish, it resists, but the trophy on Justin's wall, it cannot. The enticement of the lure is too much, so the fish is pierced and dragged away. Inappropriate jealousy, sexual desire, greed, power, they're all from within. We are tempted with our own desires. Proverbs 7 tells us the age-old story of the lure and the enticement of sexual sin. Listen to what it says. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And then an exhortation from the proverb, the writer of Proverbs says, flee. O son, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Our evil, our desires for evil, they're drawn by the wiggles and jiggles of the lure. And when our desires meet the temptation, there's conception that ensues. And the conception, which is supposed to bring life, that's what conception is supposed to do, the conception here is not to life but to death. For when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it leads to death. This is the unnatural progression of our own desires. Three stages of anti-growth leading to death. Desire, sin, death. So please, listen closely. As your trials wear on, some of you might say, I can't take this anymore. I don't understand why God is putting me through this. I have waited too long. I desire to escape. If this is your feeling, know that you are very susceptible to temptation. Don't be deceived. What you think will feel good is really a lure. What entices you is only going to lead to death, not growth. If you quit now, the trial's full effect will not be perfect and complete faith, but it will be a temptation that grows and will bring death, and you will have wasted the trial, wasted the pain that you went through, wasted the suffering. Dearly beloved, at times, the gift we need is a revealing rebuke to turn us from evil. Listen to the words of James. Listen to the Proverbs. Hear the plea. No one escapes this path if you pursue your own desires. No one does. And to those of us, to those of you who aren't in a significant trial, let me speak to you as well. Purpose in your heart now what you will do and how you will respond. It is much better to make that choice now. Will you utilize the trial for growth or will you be tempted or will you be tempted by the desires and find death? Purpose in your heart today to remain steadfast so you will gain the crown of life. Now our last gift 
is most important and foundational. It is a realization of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And it is through him alone that we can receive any of these gifts. And that's what we get to read, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When we travel down to support the church and orphanage in Bashiniva, Mexico, um, there's usually a time to buy some gifts to share with those back home. And you can find some you know, pretty cool, authentic-made Mexican products, pretty splendid. But you'll also find many products that are just simply knockoffs of the genuine, genuine article. There's something called Coolgate out there versus Colgate. <laughs> if you sat at the border, um, returned to the U.S. from very long, for any length of time, you've seen many of these imitations. Buying worthless knockoffs over the genuine article gives us a glimpse of following our own desires over the good and perfect gifts available to us. We can be easily deceived into spending our resources on junk when a gift, a good gift, a perfect gift is available. If you were to endure trials and ward off deception, you need a deep realization of God. You must realize the goodness and perfection of God. He has created the uncountable stars. He is all-powerful, while we are limited. He is full of light and pure and holy while we are susceptible to sin and failure. He is a good father who gives good and perfect gifts while we often think of ourselves and are nearsighted. He does not change whatsoever or waver while we are ever-changing and at times double-minded. Realize that this great God, of his own will, it says, he chose us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. For when we were following our own desires, and it cost us everything, that is death, he brought forth life. He took the dead in sin, and he brought forth life through his son, us to be born again. The ultimate good and perfect gift, Jesus Christ, God's son, he gave. God gave his son to die so his people might be born again. The message that brings life is this word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To give up in our trials, to think too highly of ourselves, to blame God, to forget our future, to follow our own sinful desires, is counter to whom God has made us, brought us forth to be, been made us to be. We have been born again and made to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. James wrote this letter to the first converts, the first fruits. Centuries ago, century, centuries ago, they first received this good and perfect gift. But there's still good news for us today, right? This gift remains for us today, for God is unchanging. And if you want a life where trials mean something, you will find it in Jesus. If you want a gift that's greater than any of your own resources— You need Jesus. He is provided. Many in our time in the Pacific Northwest believe that what you see is what you get. There's nothing more. If that is true, then suffering, it really is meaningless. We're just a bunch of matter. 
there is really no purpose. Jesus came to save us from our sins. It is not true that we are just matter. James says otherwise here. Jesus came to save us from our sins, to die and to rise again, and he will return. And he did so to give life to those who are dead. He came to take the pains of this world, and he is able to take the pains of this world. He's so good, he takes the pains of this world, and he can make them work for good. Our trials mean something because Christ died and rose again. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus with your life, please talk to me after the service. I would love to meet you. I'll see you in the back. There's other members here who would love to talk to you as well. Let me close with one little story or just an image. How many of you have been body surfing? If you've been body surfing, you know the rush of catching a wave. But you also know the fearful feeling of when a wave catches you. The power of the ocean is staggering. You lose complete control as the wave spins you around and around and sucks you down. And you, can, you lose track of which way is up and which way is down. And if you've had this experience, there's the feeling of panic as your lungs crave the air, but you're helpless to oblige. Have you experienced that? Like trials, this is a lot like trials. We are caught up in them and helpless to control the raging current around us. We can't catch our breath. We feel like we're drowning. But like body surfing, the right response is not to fight and claw, but is to relax, to let your body float to the top and let the wave pass. Brothers and sisters, in this new year, there will be trials in your lives. It's always the case. There'll be big ones. There'll be small ones. And when you feel caught up in the waves of doubt, Seek to relax and trust God to bring you through. This is the way for small faith to grow into maturity. This is the way to profit from your trials. The excitement of a new year is that we have a new start. So begin again by finding joy in the effects of trials. Begin again by looking to our eternal life that is found in Christ. Begin again by dwelling on the goodness and perfection of our God. And it is his steadfastness and his single-focused generosity that gives us a new start and a new life. Let's pray and then partake of communion together. Lord, we look to you as our only means of help, Lord. We ask for forgiveness for the many times we look to other things. We see you as the good giver of all gifts. We thank you for Jesus and life through him, for his death and resurrection. We thank you for giving us trials. We thank you for giving us trials that have purpose and transforming our trials into a reason for joy. We thank you for giving us relevant wisdom through prayer in Jesus. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to remain steadfast. And Father, we do pray for those who are in the midst of trials right now and are hurting. We pray for your strength in their lives, for wisdom from you. Give them faith to pray. We pray for those who are, um, feel like they're drowning. Lord, help them as well. Come to them, Lord. We pray for those who have, have given up in the trial. We pray for your mercy on their lives, that they would return to you and they'd find help. 
Lord, be with all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.